text this morning is once again Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. What is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, There are just some texts that stand out which demand more attention. And this is one of them. This is week four that we're in this parable. We will have a week five. Uh, I think the week five will be the last one before we move on. But of all Jesus' parables that we have in Scripture, this is the longest, this is the most vivid, this is the richest of them all, and that's why we're taking time to dig into this. That's why we're taking time to mine the precious jewels of Scripture, the precious jewels of Jesus' words, to unearth the truth, the truth that, what does the Bible say about the truth? That it is the truth that sets you free. It is the truth that sets a sinner free. It is the truth by which we are sanctified. Jesus says, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And so that's why we're here. We're here again. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be crucified there. I mean, he knows this. And so he is passing through the towns and villages of Judea. He's teaching. That's the majority of what he's doing. You know, sometimes we tend to boil down the the, the Gospels to a series of healings and miracles and things until we get to the cross. But the majority of what we read in the Bible, in the Gospels, is the teaching of Jesus. It was always His Word that was most important. Okay? Because His Word explains what He did. And, and, and so we are here to find out what God's Word says. And as time has gone on in Luke, and if you've been in our study through Luke during this whole time, you know this, that he's gotten a lot more blunt. He's gotten much more direct. He's making it much clearer what it means to be saved, what it means to be his disciple. It's not your bloodline. It's not what your parents believed. It's not your traditions. It's not membership in a local church. It's not being all you can be. It's not being as good as you can be. It's not being baptized. None of those things save you. It's repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. That's what saves. It's then, what that, hap- what that is, is denying yourself. And if you trust in Jesus, you take up your cross daily and you follow Him. You go where He goes, you do what He says to do. You truly entrust all that you are, all that you have, all that you desire, all that you ever will be to Him. You lay no claim to your own life anymore, but you lay it at His feet. And what He says matters. What His Word says matters. He is the Son of God and He has come that He might bring you to God. That he might, that you might be adopted into the family of God. And we are talking about family when we're talking about the parable of the prodigal son. Who is really just a part of the story. It's really a shame that that's the name that, that people ascribe to this because this is just as much about the father and the older son as we're going to continue to see this morning. Um, and, and we can't really understand the point without understanding those other two characters. But we've got to remember also what prompted this parable. If you have your Bible open to Luke 15, if you look in the first two verses, you see that the re- religious people, the scribes and Pharisees, were grumbling. They were Grumbling, and why were they grumbling? Because they were put out that Jesus would associate himself with tax collectors and sinners. And now, again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. 
Okay, so that's, that, that includes all of us. But that word sinners here really refers to the worst of the worst, the people who aren't religious, the people who, who are very much in the world, and, and that Jesus would condescend to even fellowship with them and eat with them. They could not fathom this. It may, he was basically associating with the, the, the unclean. And so what Jesus did when, he, when they grumbled, when they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them, he says, i got three parables for you. And we saw the parable of the lost sheep, we saw the parable of the lost coin, and now we're seeing a parable of a lost son. This parable is about the receiving of sinners. And, and since all have sinned again and all are in need of, of salvation, let's read this text again, Luke 15, 11 through 32. This is what it says. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I just ask for your strength this morning. 
I need your strength physically a little bit. I need your strength mentally, and I certainly need your spiritual strength. I always do to be able to deliver your word in a way that pleases you, but I ask a special portion this morning. And I pray that those who have ears to hear will hear. I pray that your truth will ring out and it will penetrate hearts and that you will be glorified. And that's what I ask. And it's all I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such a compelling account. There's, there's so much to this. And, and for the past three weeks, we've seen three big ideas. First, we saw what a sinner looks like. This younger son shamelessly demanded his share of the estate. He asked for what he was going to get when his father died, but while his father was still alive. And so he was thankless, he was selfish, he was worldly, he was all about himself. And he took everything and he he went off and he wasted everything on profligate, loose, immoral living. He, he, He broke himself, he bankrupted himself. And then a severe famine comes... And, and, you know, I'm reviewing this because it, everything is building, okay? So there's, gonna, there's been a review every week. And, and he tries to fix things himself. He hires himself out to where he, a Jewish man, is handling and feeding pigs. I mean, you don't do that if you're a Jew. So he's making himself unclean. He left his father for greener pastures. He rejected his father for greener pastures only to have a shipwrecked life. He was what a sinner looks like, the prodigal. Then we saw what repentance looks like. And what it looks like is to agree with God about who you are. To turn away from the course you are going on, from your previous course, and to move back to your father. To move back to the Father. But when he came to his senses, is what the phrase is in verse 17, the prodigal son realized that his father made sure that even the hired day laborers that he had had more than enough bread. Okay? They had more, and he was starving to death, and they have more than enough bread, so he determined to go back and basically beg his father to make him like one of them. He, he didn't have any expectation he'd be received back as a son. He treated his father as dead. He, he, he knew he'd disgraced his father. So he doesn't have any illusions that, that he'll be received back like that. But if he can just be a hired man, at least then he'll live. And, and, and so that humility and that determination to move on that humility is what repentance looks like. And then finally last week, we saw what forgiveness looks like. Because there was no reason on earth for the father to take him back. There was no reason for him to make him a son. Really not even a good reason to make him a hired man. No reason at all for the father to show his thankless, ungrateful, self-centered, rebellious son any grace or any mercy. Yet as soon as he saw his son in the distance, what did he do? He bore in himself the shame. He girded up his his robe, and he ran to his son so that his son wouldn't be shamed anymore. 
And before his son could even get out the words, make me like a hired man, he said, get the best robe, which would have been his robe, and put it on him. Because my son who was lost is found. My son who was dead is alive. He clothed him in his righteousness. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what God does for us through Jesus. He ends our shame. He takes it away and clothes us with his righteousness. And that's what forgiveness looks like. And to the grumbling scribes and Pharisees that were listening to Jesus say all this, living in this culture of honor and shame, they would have been aghast at this. They, they, you see, the religious people of Israel fancied themselves honorable. They fancied themselves righteous, and they could not comprehend Jesus doing the things He was doing, spending time with the people He was spending time with, with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus was telling them this parable to show them what God was doing even for the worst kind of people. But at this point in the story, their eyes had to be rolling because not only was this prodigal so dishonorable, but now the father has willingly shamed himself by taking him back and fully restoring him. They were no doubt waiting to hear Jesus tell how the Father put the Son in His place. But that's not what they got. They got forgiveness instead. And that was ridiculous to the scribes and the Pharisees. They had no concept of this. They were all about doing and doing and doing and routine and routine and routine and tradition and tradition and tradition and duty and duty and duty. No concept of grace. No place for mercy, which is ironic because all of the Old Testament sacrifices point to the grace of God and they point to the mercy of God. They point ultimately to to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. But for them, they're just religious exercises. Their whole life is just religious exercises. They did them to show themselves to be who they thought they were. You know, I'm going to prove I am righteous by doing this. They thought they were right before God. They thought they were the good people. And they had company in this parable because as the dead has come to life again, the son lost is found, the celebration has begun, verse 24. And in verse 25, we're introduced to the older son, the older brother. And he's out in the field. And what was he doing? He was doing his duty. He was doing what he was What he did, he was a nobleman's son, so he probably didn't do manual labor himself, but he probably supervised all the hired men. Of course, he has a great stake in this because he gets a double portion of the inheritance and and his father has already divided it up, so basically he's just waiting to take possession of what's his. So he's a great stake in this. He's making sure that everyone is doing what he wants them to do. He's making sure that everyone is doing according to his desires so that he can prosper, so that he can make sure that uh, you know he is happy. But he's out there in the field. The older son was someone the scribes and Pharisees could really identify with because you know, he wasn't the prodigal. You know, he wasn't the wasteful son. He wasn't the one who indulged in immorality. He wasn't the one who made himself unclean like one of those Gentiles. And he was not the father because... 
I mean, the father is, is, is not a hero in this story anymore to the scribes and Pharisees. He, he has shamed himself. He has taken back the prodigal. So the brother, the older brother, is the hero to them. He's the good son. He's the one who looks the part. He's the one who does what he's supposed to do. He stays in his father's house. He does his duty. He does all the things that you would do to gain wealth and prestige and be affirmed by others. And so the scribes and Pharisees like this guy. They can identify with him because it reminds them of reminds them of them. Because that's what they they are doing their duty. They're doing what a good Jew is supposed to do. And of course, who gets to define what a good Jew is supposed to do? They do. So that's convenient. They maintain a good standing in the community. They look the part of the religious. They do the things you're supposed to do. But interestingly, in this story, and have you ever thought about this, the father doesn't go and tell the older son what's going on here. The father doesn't go out there to tell the older son. He doesn't go out to him and say, Guess what? Your brother has returned. Your brother has come home and we are celebrating. Come and join us immediately. After all, this was a family. This was a family and a community celebration that was already underway. Everyone is partying. The fattened calf has been killed. But the father doesn't bother telling the older son. And why? Why is that? Well, the answer is woven subtly in this story as it unfolds. And the father doesn't tell the older son because they don't have any real relationship. The father and the older son have no real relationship. Oh, the older son looks the part. The older son is in proximity to the father. But it's clear they have no real relationship. The older son had shown no interest in his younger brother. At no point in the story does Jesus tell us, or does he even hint that the older brother, or the, you know, the responsible one, at no point does he ever go to his little brother and say, hey, you are ruining your life. You are bringing shame upon yourself. You're bringing shame upon our father. You're disrespecting our father. My father, you're bringing shame upon all of us upon our family. Stop it and straighten out your life. But he, he, never, he never does that at all. At no point had he ever done that. He just sat idly by while the younger brother shamed himself and their father, you know, and apparently he has no problem with his brother going down that rebellious road. You know, he's just going to keep on doing his duty. He has no concern for his sinful brother. No real real relationship with his father either. And If there had been real love for his father, he would have stepped in. If there had been a real relationship with his father, he would have sought to intervene. But no, instead when his brother demanded his share of the estate, he's fine, again, he's fine getting his double portion and... You know, his father's honor is, a, is not even a secondary concern here. There's no relationship with the father. And there's some symbolism to him being out in the field perhaps and not near the father, but there's no affection. He's just biding his time until his father dies and he stays in his house and he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's just biding his time, but there's no desire to honor the father. And as the day is ending, it's time to come in. 
and he's coming back toward the house. He hears music and dancing, which is news to him. Because obviously there's a party going on, the likes of which would usually take months to plan. But he knows nothing about this. He hasn't been told. The, he, he, he's not in on the plans, which is an insult to him. The, the scribes and Pharisees listening to this would have found that repugnant because after all, this is you know, his resources being used for this party. So the party's going on. It's in full swing. He gets near the house. And now the thing you would expect to see next would be for the older son to go into the party and go up to his father and ask him, what's this all about? And then his father could have told him firsthand that his brother was home. And you would expect joy and you would expect restoration of a brother. You would expect hugs and kisses and weeping. And there should have been tears of joy uh, because the older brother would know not just for himself having his brother back, but his brother would know how much when his younger brother left, it pained his father, it tore his heart out, and he, he wept and he cried how badly his father was hurt by this. And now he's been restored. There would be joy. But instead, his concern is not for what is going on with his father. The older brother is all concerned about himself, his property, his reputation. He asks the servant what's going on. Verse 27, he's told, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And if he'd had any real relationship with his father, any kind of affection at all, any kind of concern for the father's joy at all, the older son would have rejoiced at that news. He would have celebrated that news. When he heard the words, your brother has come, that should have been enough for the older brother to stop listening to the servant and sprint into the party. But that's not what he did. Because that's not how he felt. Because this was not good news to him. My father did what? He killed the fattened calf to celebrate my brother's return. This was an insult to him. That's how he took this news. And the worst part of it all, he received him back safe and sound. That sounds like, you know, he comes in off the street out of danger. But that, that phrase safe and sound means so much more than that. This man received sinners. That word safe and sound, that phrase, is an English way of translating a Greek word that means whole. He wholly received him back. Didn't make him a hired man. He completely has restored him. And they were hearing Jesus say this, the scribes and Pharisees, and they are the religious establishment. They are the ones who do their duty. They're the ones who identify with this older brother. And, and the father has shamed himself by taking him back, by receiving him back as a son. This son who took his share of the state, the estate and came back empty-handed and he received him back wholly. And now they're celebrating. But what the older son is missing is that while everybody at the party is celebrating because the younger son is back and has been restored, this party ultimately isn't about the younger son. This party is ultimately about the grace and mercy and compassion and love 
of the Father. Grace in that He's given His prodigal Son what He does not deserve. Mercy in that He's not punishing His prodigal Son like He does deserve. And compassion in that all of this is coming from the very core of the Father's being and it manifests itself in this self-shaming, sacrificial, unending, incomprehensible love that He's lavishing upon this Son who basically spat on him and cut and run. And the older son cannot stand it. It's unconscionable for his father to do this, and the scribes and Pharisees listening would have shared that opinion. They can't believe what Jesus is saying any more than the older son in the story itself. So he won't go into the party. He's not going into the party. He's not going to go to where they're celebrating grace and mercy. He's just going to do his duty. There's no way he's going to shame himself. There's no way he's going to shame himself the way the father bore in himself the shame of his son. There's no way he's going to embarrass himself. There's no way he's going to strip himself of his dignity. What does it say? He became angry and was not willing to go in. Jesus receives sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees grumble. And that's absolutely what this is a picture of, beloved. These religious people, so-called religious people, cannot fathom how God would take joy or could take joy in saving profligate, immoral, rebellious people The people they think are the scum of the earth. They can't fathom the joy that Jesus is saying is happening in heaven when even one sinner repents. They are like the older brother. They are obstinate, they are indignant, and they are going to stand on the outside, grumbling at the Father's grace. This is what hypocrites do. The older son on the outside, he looked like he loved and respected and honored his father. He would have said that he loved and respected and honored his father if you asked him. But when it came to his father receiving a sinner, even his own brother, his true heart was exposed. His anger. He's so angry on the inside. His inner enmity for his father is just oozing out. His self-righteousness is revealed just like ours is when we talk of reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're more content to stand on the outside so that we don't have to deal with people we don't have to deal with, don't want to deal with. That's self-righteousness. This, was, this is what self-righteousness looks like. It's moral It puts on the appearance of faithfulness. It looks like belief. It speaks about God. It will never say out loud, I don't believe in Jesus. It sins in secret. To what people can see, it it looks as good as it, it can. But it sins in secret. Sometimes those sins seep out because the body, most notably the mouth, cannot contain all of our sin. 
But on the inside, the self-righteous are not about the fruit of the Spirit. They're not about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Against such things there is no law, Paul writes. That's not what the self-righteous are about. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the three verses preceding that, that's what the self-righteous are about, particularly the inward sins, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, and things like these. And one of two things happens, beloved. Either self-righteousness comes to its senses and repents, or it sees the grace of God and it reads the Word of God and it pays lip service to to it, but it inwardly seethes. On the outside, it looks like the self-righteous have it all together, but on the inside, along with the anger, there is this unhappiness. There's this this sadness, this this incompleteness. The self-righteous need to be praised. The self-righteous need to be vindicated. The self-righteous need to be in control. The self-righteous need to be affirmed. The self-righteous need to be able to dictate the terms. The self-righteous need to be superior to those they decide are inferior. The self-righteous need to make sure that all the hired men are doing what they're supposed to do to benefit them so that they don't feel they need to repent. That was the older son. He seethed in his heart. How dare his father do this? No, he would not go into his father. So his father came to him. He came out and began pleading with him. And implied in pleading is a call to love, a call to show grace, a call to forgive his brother just as he, the father, had forgiven, a call to celebration, celebrating the restoration of the sinner, the finding of the lost, the life given to the dead, and yet how does the older brother respond to his father's pleading? God willing, that's what we'll see next week when we finish the parable. But this morning, the question must be considered, beloved. You need to consider it, and everyone on the outside needs to consider it too. What we've seen, we've seen what repentance looks like and what forgiveness looks like, and now we've seen two different kinds of sinners. And truth be told, most of the first kind of sinner, don't darken the doors of churches. They're content to be out in the world making a shipwreck of their lives. They're worldly. They are those who fall into the category of tax collectors and sinners. They don't come to worship with the body of Christ. They're not religious as much as they are irreligious of the world. But inside the meeting places of churches, we're much more likely to come into contact with the older brother. This type of self-righteous sinner. And today we've seen what self-righteousness looks like, beloved. And the question that I have to confront and that you have to confront is, rather you look like that. 
Remember, before you dismiss that, before you dismiss the question, remember who Jesus was saying this parable to. He was not aiming it at the tax collectors and sinners he was eating with. He was aiming it at the religious people who were grumbling about him. The church types. The people who wanted to appear holy and uphold conventions and uphold the traditions of the elders. The people who you would think are religious. Except the vast majority of them, obviously because they were grumbling at Jesus, had not come to their senses. And if you remember what we read from a couple weeks ago in 2 Timothy, that the vast majority of they have not come to their senses God has not granted them the gift of repentance so that they come to their senses and come to a true knowledge of God, the knowledge of the truth, escaping the snare of the devil. That's in 2 Timothy 2, I think it's 22 and following, 22 through 26. Remember, though, that's what repentance looks like? Coming to your senses and going back to the Father? Going back to where the joy uh, over salvation is? Going, going in the words of Paul in Romans 10.3. He was speaking about Israelites who were rejecting Christ. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you don't get to determine what you can and can't believe. You don't get to decide what you will and won't obey. You don't get to choose which commands you will accept. Either Jesus is your Lord, or Jesus is not your Lord. And for the scribes and Pharisees who appeared righteous, He was not. They were the older brother. They were the older son of this parable. Looking the part, doing their duty doing what passed for being a son of the Father, apparently, but ultimately refusing to come in. Beloved, this morning, the only way you can come into the Father is by His Son, Jesus Christ. This man receives sinners. He is the righteousness of God. You will not come to Him by doing your duty. You will not come to Him by being in proximity to Him. You will not come to Him by being a member of a church. You will not come to Him by being baptized. You will only come to Him. Those things, there's no real relationship inherent in any of those things. Do you have a real relationship with God the Father this morning? Do you have a real relationship with God the Father this morning? That's the question. Or do you just... Go through the motions thinking you can establish a righteousness of your own and that God will be okay with that. You must come to your senses and return like the prodigal did in humility, in recognition of your helplessness, and in trusting all of who you are and all you ever will be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this morning I implore you that if you find yourself living according to a standard you define, repent and entrust yourself to Jesus and make that public like He said to.
We'll see you next week. The Father tell the Son. Pleading with them. You know, come in. Your brother's back. Beloved, come in. Come in to where there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Come in with repentance and the Father will forgive you. That's the glory of the gospel. And it's for that reason we're going to thank Him. Father, may the self-righteous be crushed in their pride and turn from their sins this morning and come in repentance to Your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we, by the word of truth, be driven to a new sense of our own humility that we might trust You more and by Your grace follow Your Son Jesus in obedient faith. We thank You, Father, for receiving us back and restoring us completely. May we follow You by Your grace in obedient faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, Your Son, and our Lord. Amen.